Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Well, on our trek through the book of Hebrews, I mean Romans, (laughs) we did go through Hebrews. On our way through Romans, we have now... uh, Arrived at chapter 2, and we have completed 22 messages, in case you've not been counting. And this is number 23, and we pick it up at chapter 2 this morning. And it might be good to step back here for a moment and uh, ask the question, why would anybody or any church devote eight years to studying the book of Romans? I, I did a little mathematics and thought if we keep going at this pace, it will be about eight years before we finish these 16 chapters. And why would, why would any institution on the face of the earth, uh, week in and week out, devote itself to thinking and studying one letter written 2,000 years ago like this? This is really a remarkable thing. And as I pondered why I would do this, I uh, came up with more questions than, than answers. But the question would be, what's so special about this letter in the Bible? And then the bigger question is, what's so special about the Bible? That one would even devote so much energy and time, week in and week out, to trying to base one's life on the Bible. So... Uh, as, a, as a kind of transitional introduction from verses 1 to 32 of chapter 1 into chapter 2, I thought I would step back and, and try to answer that question for a, a moment. And I have seven answers, and they're just little bullets. I know that, that whole messages could be given on each of these answers, but receive them as pointers to answers rather than whole developed answers, and it might help. Number one, Romans, this book, this letter of 16 chapters that Paul the Apostle wrote, is the best summary of the gospel in all the Bible. Martin Luther, who founded the Lutheran Church, wrote rightly, It is really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. John Calvin founder of another whole wing of the Christian church, wrote, If we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, 
we have an open door to the most profound treasures of the Scripture. In other words, if you get Romans, you get the Bible. At least you have an open door to the Bible. That's reason number one. Reason number two. The author of this book, Paul, said that he was an authoritative spokesman for the living Christ. He had seen Christ risen from the dead as he appeared to him on the Damascus road. And Christ had commissioned him as an apostle. And that word apostle means an authoritative sent one as a representative of somebody else with their authority. So that as Paul writes and as he preaches in the churches, he's preaching on behalf of Christ. And so if that's true, then the book of Romans is not just the word of a man. It's the word of the living Christ who has triumphed over death, who sits at the right hand of God, who will one day come and call this world to account. And if that's true, that's really big. Is it true? Well, Paul knew, this is number three, Paul knew that it would be doubted that he was such a person. And therefore, in several of his 13 letters in the Bible, he argued for it. He gave reasons for why people should believe him when he claims to be a authorized spokesman of the living Christ. For example, he argued from the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. He hated the Christian church. He was standing at the stoning of Stephen, throwing, or actually was holding the coats, approving of those who threw the stones that killed the first Christian martyr. He was waging war as he got letters from the synagogue or from the temple to go to the synagogues up in Damascus to kill or imprison Christians. And now, as he writes the book of Galatians, one of his shorter letters, he says to all the people who could check this out, this is open information, he's a known character, that he was now totally reversed. He was suffering and laying down his life to defend that which he once persecuted. And he offered the explanation of this, among other things, as I have met the living Christ. He has commissioned me and has persuaded me that he is real. Fourth, this was confirmed by the other eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul didn't go off by himself alone and say, I don't care what any of the other apostles say. I've got the revelation. I know that I belong to Jesus. I'll write what I want to write. He knew that if he did that and he proved wrong, the whole church would be shattered. That if this church thing was real and Jesus Christ was real, there had to be some kind of harmony between those who had seen the Lord. And so he went to Jerusalem. He talked to Peter and James and John, the other eyewitnesses. And he received from them, it says in Galatians, the right hand of fellowship. And as he's saying all of this in the book of Galatia, for example, or book of Galatians, He's saying it to some very hostile readers called Judaizers, which means they could have easily gone there and checked it out with Peter, James, and John, because they were all still alive, and proved that he was right or wrong in his claims of having been confirmed and having unity with the other apostles. Here's the fifth observation. He suffered much in the service of Christ. The faith that he was trying to wipe out, he was now giving up his life for. 
And he wrote one time in 1 Corinthians, If Christ is not raised from the dead, then we're all, we of all men, are most to be pitied. In other words, he didn't choose to become a Christian or make up stories about having seen the living Christ because there were perks in it. There were no perks for Paul on earth in this. He was beat, he was stoned, he was imprisoned over and over again, which was an unbelievable testimony. (laughs) That's not true. An unbelievably believable testimony that he had truly experienced the living Christ to undergo such a remarkable willingness to suffer for him when there was so little to be gained in this world if he were trying to make things up. Here's the sixth observation. People for 2,000 years have read this book and found, as we in this church have found, that it makes more sense out of reality. The big issues of reality than anything else we've ever run into. Any philosophy, any life help program, any tradition outside the Bible. As we've tried out other things in our lives over the decades, we have found the issues of God, the issues of what is a human person, the issues of where do we come from, why are we here, What does the future hold? What is evil? What is sin? What's God done in the world to solve the problems of pain and sin and evil and corruption? What is true happiness? How is life on this earth to be ordered so that society flourishes rather than collapsing into chaos? We have found answers to these kinds of mega questions that bring a coherence to life and a meaning to life and a significance to life that we can't find anywhere else. And that has brought a kind of self-authenticating power to this book among all the other books. Finally, observation number seven. This book has had probably more than any other book in the Bible an impact on people that is remarkable. Give you a few examples. It was a sentence, one sentence from the book of Romans that converted St. Augustine, who became the most influential teacher in the Christian church. He was living in 386 when in a garden he heard read the words in Romans 13 that time was sufficient for doing what the Gentiles do and now put away all of that and embrace the light of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, I've already mentioned In uh, 1515 and 16, he was preaching through Romans, and he was not a converted man. He was a monk, and he was desperate to find God. But his job in the university was to teach Romans, and so he did it. And when he got to chapter 1, verse 17, which I'm going to quote in just a few minutes, he was overwhelmed by the glory of the gospel and was transformed, and from him was birthed what we call the Protestant Reformation. Two hundred years later... 1738, John Wesley, remember him? John Wesley in England goes to Aldersgate listening to the exposition of and the reading of Luther's commentary on Romans is transformed into another man. And the whole 
revival called the Great Awakening came from this encounter with the book of Romans and blessing came upon America and England in those days. Let me give you one 20th century example. This was new to me. I just read about this in recent days. There was a Romanian named uh, Dumitru Cornilescu. And he was a student at, in Bucharest. And he was a Greek Orthodox person. But not saved. That is, he didn't have a personal relationship with <coughs> God through Jesus Christ. He just knew facts. And he tried to do his duty as a, uh, a priest. And... He decided in all of his questioning that the best thing he could do would be to translate into Romanian, because there was no good translation in 1916, the whole New Testament. And so he undertook to begin a translation. And when he got to the book of Romans, where we are, he was overcome by the reality of the great truths of the gospel and, and was converted had an encounter with the living Christ and found forgiveness for his sins and received Christ in his righteousness. And it cost him a lot because before long he had been exiled by the Orthodox Patriarch in 1923 and he died some years later in Switzerland. So all those just to illustrate that the book of Romans has had a tremendous impact and we here at Bethlehem have come to love the book and we are working our way through it and finding it one of the greatest words from God to his church that's ever been given. So here we come now to chapter 2. And I think it would be good probably for me to uh, orient us on what we've seen so far. In verses, I, most of you perhaps don't have a Bible this morning, I don't know. But if you have one or you want to reach for one in the pew, you can look at some of these other verses besides the ones that are printed here in the worship folder. I'm going to jump around for just a moment here before I get to our text. In, in Romans 1... Um, verses 16 and 17, what you have is the uh, overarching theme of the book. And it goes like this. <clears throat> I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, <clears throat> for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. Now, that is a glorious two verses. And in a nutshell, what it says is, God has an incredibly strong desire to save people from sin and death and judgment. You see that word salvation there? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then later on in chapter 3, he's going to explain what the content and essence of that gospel is. Namely, God put forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, not because he was a sinner, but because we're sinners and ours is on him. And he raised him from the dead and he installed him at the right hand of God. And one day he'll come and establish his kingdom on the earth. There's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again triumphant over sin and death. There's the gospel. But in verse 17, it explains why this gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. And it says, it's because in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed 
from faith to faith. And what we've seen in our studies is that what we lack as sinners, God provides, namely righteousness. If God only dealt with us in His righteousness and our sin, there would be judgment. That's what would be right. But if I'm a sinner and God is righteous, and there's going to be hope for me to be accepted and loved by this God and have joy in His presence forever and ever, then I have to have a righteousness. And so many people try to work it up themselves. They try to do good or they try to join the right church or get baptized or do things in the community that are helpful so that their consciences stop slaying them at night and they can feel a little bit of acceptance with God. And none of that's ever going to work, which is why the gospel is such good news because the whole point of the gospel is there is a righteousness that is being revealed from faith to faith. Meaning, if we will have faith, God gives us the righteousness that, that He demands from us. The righteousness that God demands from us, He freely gives to us. Namely, His righteousness, not our righteousness. There's the heart of the Christian gospel. If you ever wondered, what's at the heart of the Christian gospel? What makes a person a Christian? It is the stopping of trying to be righteous in ourselves in order to win God's approval and the embracing and receiving by faith of the gift of another person's righteousness, namely God's, which He purchased for us in the death of His Son on the cross. That's the theme of this book. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Now, in verses 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, you have this long section designed to show you and me that we need this gospel. In other words, that we're not righteous. And you would think, my goodness, I don't need three chapters. <laughs> I do not need three chapters to prove to John Piper's a sinner. I just need a mirror. That's all I need. So why these three chapters? Why chapter 1 verse 18 all the way down to chapter 3 verse 20 to prove that pagans outside any religious influence are sinners and under judgment and that the Jewish people and all the moral people who have the law and who try to keep their lives clean also need the gospel because they're sinners and under the judgment of God. Why so much? And the reason is because you and I are willing in a kind of general way to say, well, sure, I'm not perfect. Who's perfect? I don't know anybody that's not willing to say that. I know I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And you, can, you don't hear in that any desperation, do you? There's no sense of, I'm really in trouble with the living God. We tend to suppress our selfishness, our arrogance, our greed, our rebellion against God. We tend to hold that down and kind of make little surface admissions that we're, we're like everybody else, you know. But not many people feeling that way become desperate. For God. And so Paul feels like he's got to devote some time to exposing this. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean about this, this suppression. 
I was preaching in the park this summer. Some of you were there down at uh, East Phillips Park. We'd get out of here and in the summertime we'd get outside and we'd preach and we'd worship in public. It's great to let people know how great the gospel is. And I was preaching and I gave a whole survey of the Bible in 25 minutes. That was my effort anyway. And as I began, and I began with creation, and then I got to Adam and Eve and sin and the fall and how everything got wrecked and ruined by sin... Ruth Ravenhorst told me afterwards, where are you, Ruth? You in the service? She's in another service. She came up to me afterwards and she said, wow, when you got to that sin part, the woman sitting beside me who had walked up in the park said, she leaned over and said, you don't believe that stuff, do you? And, and Ruth was kind of shocked and she said, well, Listen to the rest of what he has to say. Listen to the rest of it. Because this woman was angry. She's going to get up and leave. Because I was highlighting sin. That we're all sinners. That we're corrupt. That we need not education, but salvation. And uh, she stayed. And I don't know what the outcome was. But that gave me a taste of how some people hear this word about sin. Now, here's another illustration. Day before yesterday, I was in Orlando, Florida to speak to uh, the Evangelical Theological Society. And the speaker before me was Don Carson, and he gave an illustration that I thought was remarkable. He said, isn't it ironic that at the end of the bloodiest century in the history of the world, namely the 20th century, and he had in mind not only the Holocaust, but six million Jews slaughtered. But 20 million in Ukraine under Stalin, maybe 50 million in China under Mao Zedong, 20% of the Cambodian population under Paul Pot, 800,000 Tutsis in Rwanda, and who knows how many elsewhere under other regimes. This is the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Isn't it ironic, he said, that you find two things in the universities at the end of this century. One is the denial that there is anything called evil. You can't call anybody evil. You do your thing, we do our thing, don't label me evil. Isn't that ironic, he said. And the second thing is, isn't it ironic that all the testimonies that began this century before World War One, where on the first day of the Battle of the Somme 60,000 British soldiers fell and within four months 600,000 Germans were dead 420,000 Allied troops were dead who in this room remembers that? A few gray heads, maybe. Isn't it ironic that the, the optimism and the hope of the 19th century and all of its gaiety still persists at the end of this century with people saying, what you need today is not salvation from inner corruption, but education because there's inner goodness. I mean, you tell me that the people who did the most atrocities in the 20th century were uneducated people. They were mega-educated people. 
who slaughtered millions. The issue is not education. The issue and the need is salvation. Something's wrong in here, really wrong in this human heart of mine. And we need to at least seek earnestly why it is that in this century, with all of our advances over all the other centuries, it has been the bloodiest, most ugly, most horrible century in the history of the world. Well, Paul spends three chapters in order to avoid, help us avoid, running away from our sinfulness. And that's a gracious thing for him to do, and I'm thankful. So here we come now to the beginning of chapter 2, after seeing a long list of sins. Maybe I should read this list again, just to refresh our memory. Just before chapter 2 begins, at the end of chapter 1 in verse 29, it says, They, meaning just human beings in general who are without the influence of religion or without the influence of the Christian religion or the Jewish religion are, quote, here's the list, filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and envy and full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now, there's something about that list that's very relevant to us. Namely, it has really ugly things in it that a lot of people would say, oh, I don't do that. And then it has other things in it like gossip and slander and pride and lack of mercy and lack of... Love and lack of loyalty. And then we start to think, hmm, I'm in there. I'm in that list. And then it closes with verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give a hearty approval to those who practice them. Okay, chapter 1 is over. Paul hears... As he closes chapter 1, he hears a group of people over in the corner saying, That's right. That's right. You write about those sins here. And you get those people fixed. And he senses a kind of smugness over in this corner and a kind of self-righteousness. And he writes about it now. He writes about it. Um, we call these people hypocrites. And I'll be real honest with you this morning. Uh, regular attenders, members, and guests, I have, I have a very plain agenda in this message. One of my very plain upfront agendas is to put hypocrisy out in front of us and ask what God thinks about it. Because I'm aware that one of the big stumbling blocks to people's knowing God and listening to Christ and giving Him a fair hearing is the hypocrisy of religious people. So what I want to happen in this room is that God would have His say in regard to hypocrisy. And maybe under the preaching of this word... God himself would speak to you about 
His attitude towards hypocrisy so that you come to terms with who God is on the basis of what God says about hypocrisy, not the way some religious people are. That's my hope. So let's go ahead and read now the part that's printed right here in your worship folder. So if you don't have a Bible, let's all look at this. And if you've got a pen and you were supposed to get pens as you came in, why don't you take your pen? Because I'm going to have you circle several words in this text. Because I don't have any verse numbers in this text. You see, this paragraph doesn't have any verse numbers in it. And I want to draw your attention to a few things as I read it. So, have a pencil or a pen, if you've got one, ready. And I'll point out what to circle as we go. Therefore, you have no excuse... Every one of you who passes judgment. So you see who he's talking to now? He's talking to this group of smug, self-righteous people over in the corner who just said, Amen! Amen, Paul! We like chapter 1! Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now circle two things in that verse. Circle no excuse and circle condemn yourself. And we'll come back. You, no excuse, condemn yourself. Verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Now circle the phrase judgment of God. Verse 3, but do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So circle again, judgment of God. Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Circle riches of His kindness. Circle tolerance. And circle patience. And circle the whole phrase, kindness of God leads you to repentance. That's the phrase printed on the pen that you, that you got when you walked in. I asked David, can you print this on the pens? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Okay, verse 5, last verse. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So circle lastly, day of wrath and righteous judgment of God. Okay. Now, the reason I had you circle those kinds of things is because I only want to make two points very briefly in the last few minutes of this message. And the point is that God has two responses to hypocrisy or to sin. The blatant, ugly kind of sin and the moralistic, self-righteous kind of sin. He has two responses. Judgment and kindness. Because they correspond to two attributes in God. God is just and God is merciful or kind. 
Now let's just look at those one at a time. First, God is just. You see right at the beginning there, the first thing you circled, it says you have no excuse. Now why does he say that? Those who've been around Bethlehem now for the last 22 messages know that in chapter 1 verse 20, And in chapter 1, verse 32, he said exactly the same thing about another group of people. Therefore, you are without excuse. Therefore, you are without excuse. And here he says it again now to another group of people. You are without excuse. What's the point of making sure he points out why people don't have excuses? Why do you do that? Just think about that. Don't you do that. In other words, if you say to your child... You have no excuse for having done that. What's about to happen when you say that? (laughs) It's not a cookie. (laughs) You you say that before you discipline a child. You have no excuse. Why do you say it? Because you want them to know that discipline is just. That's the point here. You have no excuse... Meaning God is just if judgment comes. So God is a just judge. He's not a willy-nilly judge. He's not a, a, a God who has bursts of anger that are out of control like so much of our anger is. When we read about the wrath of God, we shouldn't think about somebody fuming out of control as though he has no control over his mind and heart. God is a very controlled being. But full of emotion, both positive and negative, when each is appropriate. And so the first point to make here, God is very just. And therefore, if there's going to be judgment, and you see all those circles that I gave you about judgment, it's going to be only on people who have no excuse. If there were any legitimate excuse, God would judge nobody. He's just. That's the main point here, number one, first main point. And we're all included here. I pointed out those words, greed and envy and gossip and unloving and unmerciful. John Piper has a long way to go before I could ever saunter up to God and say, I did pretty good, didn't I? So uh, open up, let me in. No way could I ever get to heaven like that. I'm going to be under judgment if I'm dependent upon myself. Which leads us now to the second characteristic of God. And it's amazing to me in these five verses that Paul would mingle them the way he does. That he doesn't feel any tension at all. Sometimes we feel tension. How can God be just and how can God be a God of wrath and still be a God of mercy and a God of kindness and a God of love? Well, the Bible doesn't have any problem with that. It's our problem. It's not the Bible's problem. It says here in verse 4, verse 4 is the wonderful good news verse in these five, that, that God has riches of kindness. And isn't it good that it says riches of kindness and not just kindness? Because there are kind of stingy kind people and there are little kind people, and then there are big-hearted kind people. And if you contemplate God's wealth, it's very wealthy. And so riches or wealth of kindness is a huge kindness. But now, what does it look like? If I'm a sinner, 
And if judgment is coming, if a day of wrath, in verse 5, is coming, what would kindness be? And the two words used here, you see these in, 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 I had you circle them, in verse 4, the two words to unfold it are forbearance and patience. What does that imply? The, the word patience, makrothumia in the original language, ma, you hear macro, makrothumia, long suffering. What these words imply is that the kindness of God does this. If God were only just and not just and kind, the very first time I sinned, I'd be cooked. I'd be cinder. I'd be smashed. I'd be dead. Because justice would land on me immediately. I would be clean. I'd be gone. But God is not just that way. He postpones. He pushes back. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, He is long-suffering with us in our rebellion and in our sin, making more and more place, or as it says here, the kindness of God is leading, 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 leading to repentance. Now bring that right home to yourself this morning. I think for every single person in this room, it is a kindness that we are here this morning. I'm 52 years old. Some of you are in your 90s. And some are are nine or under. And God's mercy, His kindness has been patient and patient and patient and has pushed it back and pushed it back and pushed it back. Why does God make space for us after we've sinned? Why does judgment get postponed after we've sinned? Verse 4 tells us why. The kindness of God is leading to repentance. God leads to repentance in this space. This is a reprieve for everybody in this room this morning. We are all being given time. In fact, it is a kindness that we've had this music, that this truth. It was a kindness that Marcia spoke her heart to us the way she did. It's a kindness that Scripture is being unfolded to all of us right now. This is a kindness from God. For all you know, before this day is over, you will die. And then... If you have believed and trusted Him and been led to repentance, you will have everlasting kindness. And if you have refused to believe and to repent, you will have everlasting judgment and wrath. That's a scary thing. Almost everybody in this room is going to watch the Packers and the Vikings play today. So I just want to make a comment here. I probably will watch some of it too. If I wake up from my nap soon enough. Um, But I just want you to be thinking while you watch. There are more important things happening in the universe. I I mustn't expound on this too far. I'll become very cynical. (laughs) 
my esteem of professional sports is modest. <laughs> Especially basketball right now. Okay, I want to close by talking about that seriousness in just two more minutes, maybe. My prayer on this wonderful Thanksgiving morning in this context of worship and word is that everybody will repent. I want everybody in this room to repent. I want everybody in this room to know God, to love God, to trust God. I want you to go back with me to the gospel in verses 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And now we know why we need salvation. Judgment is coming. But salvation is given because God is kind. And we know because of chapter 3, verses 20 to 26, that the way salvation was bought for us was that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was put forward as a sin bearer so that we don't have to bear our own sin, but Christ bears our sin. And He purchased for us a righteousness from God that would be given to us freely. You can't earn it. Let me, let me compare Baptists and Lutherans for a minute, okay? We're Baptists and they're Lutherans, and we both make terrible mistakes. Here's a big mistake that Baptists and Lutherans make. You could stir in Catholics too if you want, and Methodists and Presbyterians, but let's just do Baptists and Lutherans for a minute. One of the differences is that Lutherans baptize babies and we don't. We walk aisles and sign cards. And therefore, both of our traditions run a huge risk. The Lutherans run a huge risk of not repenting and not believing and trusting in their baptism. And the Baptists run a huge risk of not repenting and not believing, but trusting in their aisle walking and their card signing at Billy Graham crusades and evangelistic meetings. Walking aisles, signing cards, and getting baptized is not repenting and believing. They can be good things. But they don't save anybody. What saves is not a movement. It is an inner awakening to the fact that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. An awakening to the wonderful kindness of God. A receiving of the provision that he's made by faith and saying, yes, I receive Christ and all that he bought for me when he died and rose. And a turning of our back on sin and entering by the power of God now working in us to fight the fight of faith. And grow little by little into likeness with Jesus. And it's slow and it's hard, but God is merciful. So I think the way I'd like to end is to pray with you. Would you bow with me in prayer? And I think what I'd like to do is to pray a kind of prayer that if you were to pray it from your heart right now, would signify that God is at work in your life and would enable you to receive His forgiveness and be saved from His judgment. The prayer would go something like this, and you can, if God puts it in your heart, just quietly in your own mind, say it with me. Oh God, I know in the depth of my being that you exist. You're a creator and that I'm accountable to you. I know, too, in the depth of my being 
that I have sinned against you. I don't love you the way I should and I've mistreated you and I've mistreated people. I'm really concerned about this and I'm sorry for it. And I know now from your word, indeed I know from the fact that the sun came up on my life this morning instead of hell, that you are kind and patient and forbearing. And I know that Jesus Christ, your son, came into the world to die for sinners. And I trust him now. I trust him. I look away from my own righteousness, which is practically non-existent. I look away from my own righteousness, my sin, and my hopelessness to Jesus. And I say, Jesus, you are my only hope. And I believe in you. And I thank you for dying that I might be saved from my sin. And I now, Father, in the name of this Jesus, my Savior and my Lord, renounce sin and I renounce Satan and I ask you to be my Lord and to guide me and help me to live more like Jesus every day. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.